Today we are pleased to introduce Robert A. Birmingham as part of the Wisconsin Historical Museum's History Sandwiched In Lecture Series. The opinions expressed today are those of the presenter and are not necessarily those of the Wisconsin Historical Society or the museum's employees. Now retired, Robert Birmingham served as the State Archaeologist of Wisconsin for many years and received the Increased Lapham Research Medal from the Wisconsin Archaeological Society. He is the author of Spirits of Earth, the Effigy Mound Landscape of Madison and the Four Lakes, and Skunk Hill, a Native Ceremonial Community in Wisconsin, among other books. His book, Indian Mounds of Wisconsin, co-authored with Wisconsin Historical Society archaeologist Amy Roseborough, was recently released in a second edition. So now please join me in welcoming Robert Birmingham. Well, thank you, and it's uh, that time of year when, uh, for Wisconsinites, uh, temperature doesn't make any difference. As long the sun's out, it's a nice day, beautiful day. You can tell, you know. Um, so thank you very much for, for, for coming out uh, uh, today. Um, I'm, I'm going to talk about my book, or the book that I wrote with, along with um, Amy uh, Rosebrow of, of the Wisconsin Historical Society and uh, the new edition. Uh, but uh, I want to go back to the first edition, and that uh, which was published in 2000, and why a second edition uh, was, was necessary. Um, back in the 1990s, uh, when I was state archaeologist, uh, this was a time when mound preservation began. Basically, new laws had been passed uh, starting in 89 or so uh, that protected burial places of, uh, of all people and no matter how old they were. Uh, before that, interestingly, Native American graves are now protected by law, cemeteries, and ancient ones. Uh, so this, this uh, law uh, sought to correct that and uh, included mounds because uh, so-called Indian mounds are burial uh, sites. Um, so this created a great deal of public interest. And constantly I was getting calls asking a few questions. And that was, those were, um, so how old are these mounds? Um, who made the mounds? Uh, what do they mean? What were they used for? Every day, <laughs> asking the same questions. How old are these mounds? Who made them? Uh, what were they used for? You know, and so on. So we were, I was giving the, you know, the answers. We were all giving answers as best we knew. Uh, but it occurred to me, I should write this down. <laughs> you know, uh, There's so much interest that what we need to do is, is to put this together in book form. And the first edition of Indian Mounds, Wisconsin, in fact, turned out to be the first synthesis of Indian Mounds published in 150 years. No one had put together the complete story before. Uh, so, uh, and that was, uh, of course, very popular. Now, since then, uh, and I think because of the book, uh, there, uh, the, there has been a great deal of, of additional research. Not archaeological excavations, because mounds are protected, but for going back, developing new hypotheses, looking at new uh, angles. Uh, for example, universities, Madison, Milwaukee, and so on, uh, they, they assign their, their graduate students who are looking for topics 
uh, to go back and look at excavations that took place 50, 60 years beforehand, but now with fresh eyes and now with new insights uh, and so on. So dozens of, of theses and uh, publications are derived by just going and looking at old data, but with new uh, insights. Uh, my co-author, 2010, wrote the encyclopedia of effigy mounds. He literally looked at every single mound group, thousands of mound groups, ever recorded and compiled all the data on each one. Uh, and again, for the first time, we, we had the full record in which you could go back, whereas before you really had to search and scratch, you know, and do that, which has been an unbelievable boon. Uh, new technologies uh, have developed, uh, which I'll be showing you uh, in a few minutes, that have given us incredible insights. So basically, Indian Mounds of Wisconsin, number one, is out of date. And it was important to keep it updated, not just for the public interest, but this is being used as a textbook, you know. And you don't want students, you want the students to always be, you know, having um, the most current information. So, so that led to um, Indian Mounds of Wisconsin, too, uh, with all of this new information, some of it quite quite exciting. Now, so first of all, let's talk about what we mean by uh, Indian mounds. Uh, everybody is familiar with big round mounds. These are burial places. Um, and these kind of huge mounds were built very early, probably starting about 500 BC, 800 BC. These are the first burial. Native people lived here for 13,000 years, but didn't start building mounds until way late, you know, which is interesting, you know. So, so why did they start building mounds when they hadn't before? And in fact, by 1200 AD, they stopped building mounds, even though they continued to occupy here. So one of the things that we're very interested in is, so what's this about? Why, why, why do people make monuments during only some periods of time, and afterwards don't, beforehand uh, don't. Um, so these are familiar uh, round mounds. Um, the, uh, the most interesting, at least in my account, are, are the so-called effigy mounds uh, that we now know were built in the form of uh, uh, animals important to Native American belief systems and supernatural beings. Many of these are, are, are not animals seen in the woods when you go out walking. They're invisible, um, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, this is an image. Can you see the bears there? The bears. And then there's birds right there. Uh, this image kind of looks kind of weird. But it's a cool image in that this is a part of this new technology called LIDAR. LIDAR. And as most of our technologies, it actually came from military use. Um, they needed to make 3D pictures of your enemy installations. Um, so basically, what, what li how LIDAR works is uh, aircraft or satellite 
sends down a laser that hits something solid and it pops back and it makes a map. It's got to hit something really solid, like the ground. Not like a bush, not like a tree, not like high grass. So for the first time, we can see the effigy mounds without the obscuring, obscuring vegetation, which has led to, and in, in three dimensions, in three, three dimensions. As you can see here, uh, this is the Effigy Mounds National Monument. Can you see how the bears march following the contours of the topography? Uh, the birds, which are probably peregrine falcons, are on the slope as though diving down for the kill. So these were produced to conform to the national environment and to animate the mounds themselves. That is, we believe that when people made these mounds, they believed that they were ceremonially giving life to the spirits themselves. These are spirits. You know, they're not statues of spirits. These are spirits. And the, and the use of the environment gives that motion, and we can study it so easy now uh, with the lighter, again, because uh, of the uh, lack of obscuring uh, vegetation. The, I'll just mention one thing local. Oops. Oh, before I go to that, another group of effigy mounds, aerial photography is all, often good here too, but this gives you an idea of what effigy mound lines look like. Uh, this is a bird and a bear uh, shown here uh, among other mounds. Both of these animals very important in the religious beliefs of, of Native American society. Now, going back to LIDAR, um, and again, you're, you're, we're seeing a map made by lasers, so it's not crystal clear, but you can see the three dimensions, right? Can you see a ridge running down here? Okay, so this is an effigy mound group I discovered last month <laughs> near Madison in a woodlot. Um, I had been uh, consulting with the Bishop's Bay development people, and there had been mounds recorded hundred years ago, somewhere in the vicinity that we were looking for. And uh, so uh, in previous days, I spent some time, you know, just walking around, doing a searching, beating down the bushes, looking for mounds. But in 15 minutes, I just went on the website, a Dane County LIDAR website, it's publicly accessible, pulled up the map, and bingo, there was a round mounds, like I showed you before, uh, an effigy mound and something like we call a linear mound. Um, and this has been happening almost every week. New mounds or mounds that we thought were destroyed. You know, all of a sudden appear maybe in a slightly different location. You know, uh, and unfortunately this gets to be like a web search. You know how you go in, you do, you, when you get on a web and then it's almost midnight <laughs> and you spent all the day getting distracted, you know. Effigy mound LIDAR is exact. Oh, look at this, look at this and stuff like that. So I gotta, I gotta start um, ridding myself of, of the addiction here, the science addiction 
uh, to do that. Leave it up to the, leave it up to the younger people who like sitting in front of devices all day long. Um, seem to have lost my one image here. Uh, but a third type of mound um, that we'll talk about a little bit later uh, are, are platform mounds, big bases for buildings that were introduced to the area about 1050 AD by a group of people we call the Mississippians. How many people have been to Astalan? Yeah. Oh, well, great, yeah. So you saw the platform mounds there. These are bases. These are burial mounds. These are bases uh, for buildings. And uh, we only have a couple examples. One spectacular example is Astalan itself, um, a large fortified town that's 1,000 years old. And a part of this Mississippian society that expanded in the area and then disappeared. Uh, another group of Oh, uh, platform mounds is up in Trempolo, Wisconsin, uh, which has been the subject of very new research described in the book um, because, uh, uh, to everyone's surprise, they found a village area associated with the mounds of people who were directly from an ancient city we call Cahokia. And all the stuff is from Cahokia in southern Illinois. There's no local stuff. People just brought all their stuff and the religious beliefs. They built the temple uh, and uh, maybe stayed for two decades and left. You know, so. All right, so uh, with mound building, I'm, uh, I, I, in order to put this in context, I just briefly wanted to, 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 to run through what was happening before that. Before, again, mounds were, were not built until about 500 AD. As you can see, went through changes. Um, uh, so, uh, the book goes through sort of the trajectory of changing native cultures. And what we see starting 13,000 years ago is that populations grew through time and populations became more complex. Um, in, the, in the whole Midwestern area, as a result, a city was made, an actual Native American city, again, Cahokia. And so we see this trajectory of, of, of complexity. And many of these Native cultures are as every bit sophisticated and complex as equivalent societies anywhere in the world for their, for their time. You know, uh, so we always struggle with the stereotype, at least the older people do, of, of sort of the savage, you know, the, the primitive, uh, people, when in the archaeological record, shows quite the opposite uh, uh, in many, uh, in all cases. So, um, but going back 13,000 years, we have uh, people uh, who came into the area, who uh, small bands at the end of the glaciers, and when our lakes here were in fact all a part of one giant lake because they, you, you know about this? <laughs> yeah, you, you remember the name of the lake? Glacial Lake Yohara, yeah. And, um, but the glaciers are melting and so on and, and people started moving in the area and they made, 
and some artifacts that are pretty spectacular and pretty special, uh, like these. Um, these are projectile points used to to um, hunt extinct game. Um, probably these were used to hunt woodland caribou, and they come from the largest site, we call these Paleo-Indian sites, in the whole Midwest, if not whole North America, uh, which is on the Ahara River near McFarland. <laughs> you know, uh, another thing that makes uh, this whole area uh, special. Um, this in fact shows you these little triangles are where the earliest people lived, these Paleo-Indians lived, and um, as you can see, that white area is, is Glacial Lake Yahara. It's all on the shores. They are, they are living on the shores of this great uh, glacial lake. Uh, through time, the climate warmed, population grew, and with them, again, becoming uh, a, a great deal of complexity. For example, trade uh, for exotic items um, developed already starting about five or 6,000 years ago often bringing in, again, very exotic and uh, symbolic items um, uh, to, to the um, uh, people themselves. About 5,000 years ago, in fact, the uh, people started to trade copper, in, in, especially in Wisconsin, uh, which is bizarre because there's no copper deposits in Wisconsin. They were getting the copper from uh, from um, Lake Superior area, but as I pointed out in the book, um, the copper items that are being traded are almost identical. I mean, they're, they're trading similar objects for similar objects, you know, basically. Um, but when you think about it, if you're giving a gift, it doesn't matter uh, what it is. Uh, and in fact, again, as I pointed out in the book, uh, in Native American belief systems, a copper is a, a source of power, great power, great supernatural power. Uh, in fact, some of the water spirits in the Great Lakes, monsters, are known for their copper tails. But these are powerful. So people were exchanging gifts of power and therefore binding uh, people uh, together. So this theme of religious beliefs keeps uh, moving right down the line. The first mounds um, occur, uh, as I mentioned, about five or 600 AD, uh, and are associated with other developments. For example, the first pottery. Now, they've been around for thousands of years. Why would pottery, as for cooking and other containers, only come now? Well, the answer is because before that, they were very mobile. And what's the last thing you want to have when you're moving? And that is something you could break. <laughs> All right, everybody stop. Then it makes new pottery. Um, so, so it was only when people started to uh, live in more permanent communities. And then bingo, pottery starts. But as I point out in the book and other works, they're decorated with special designs that relate uh, to uh, the, the powers of the earth, air, and the underworld, and so on. So we see these themes keep 
being elaborated on. Um, and at the same time, we see these first mounds, these conical mounds that I talked about. People were buried in pits below the mountains. We were buried in the mounds. And the uh, about, um, starting about 300 BC, <coughs> we see a great influence in the cultures here in Wisconsin uh, from Ohio. Uh, in Ohio, about 300 uh, um, BC, and going to about 200 AD, we have the development of a very complex culture that is called Hopewell. And the Hopewell people had, again, a very complex society, uh, but, uh, but most visibly built huge earthworks in circles and in um, squares, uh, uh, along with mounds and uh, sacred roads leading to these. Um, and what you're seeing right here covers many square miles. I mean, these, these, are, these are huge. This, is, this covers 18 acres. This covers 20. This is a huge ceremonial center, but earthen ceremonial center. It, uh, Hopewell was, in fact, like this exchanging of copper, a religious movement. Uh, but a part of that religious movement also uh, included uh, the trade for exotic items from throughout eastern North America. So trade. This is uh, from a mound in Wisconsin. Uh, that was built because the Hopewell influence reached into Wisconsin at the time. People here did not build these giant earthworks, but they did build uh, burial mounds. Um, basically, the mounds were covered covered a mausoleum. The idea here would be to uh, dig a big pit, or if the bedrock was too close to the surface, make a room out of stones. And that became a family mausoleum. And as people died, they're put in the pit or, or in the enclosure. Somebody else died, they'd open it up again. But, and then when it needed to be abandoned, when they left or, or was filled, they put a mound over it. So these are mausoleum mounds. But in many cases, huge um, offerings, very important offerings that show this Hopewell influence uh, this is again from one mound um, near Trempolo, actually. Um, and these are the grave goods that accompanied these people that were buried in the mounds. Obsidian from out west. Uh, copper, again, from Lake Superior. Um, other blades uh, from other areas. Um, these beads are wood that was covered with sil silver, with a silver coating. And the silver, again, is from distance. So they're bringing in, but these, these, these items obviously had symbolic value, but they also seem to mark the status of one group of people who were buried in the mounds that was different than others. Um, archaeological excavations 
inadvertently, in fact, found some years ago uh, where other people were buried. Uh, near Prairie du Chien, there's an island, and archaeologists from uh, Madison were excavating to get the history of the region and came across a huge pit with over 60 people that had not been mounded. The mound with all the, and, and very few grave goods, but the mound with the grave goods was in the high bluff area, and this was near the water, uh, showing a division between an upper world and a lower world. And the people in the upper world were at that society, uh, or in that time, the, the nobles, the leaders, and, and they got the burial with the, with the treasures, basically, and the high bluffs, whereas the others represented a lower world where mo more people were uh, represented. Now, the Hopewell collapsed for reasons we were still trying to figure out, but about 600 AD, we see a new movement taking place. Similar in the, to the extent it was not purely economic. I'm, so, I'm sorry, when I stand in the way, please, because <laughs> I, I tend to roam here. Um, but another movement that was, uh, again, not totally economic, uh, but uh, maybe called religious, and that is when these effigy mounds are being built that I talked about before, into vast landscapes. Between 600 and about 1100 AD, here in Wisconsin, 15 to 20,000 mounds were built during that time period, which in itself are more mounds than any equivalent area of North America, and I suppose, by extension, in the world. Wisconsin had always been a really popular place to live. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but this is correlated uh, by a climatic shift, uh, we call the medieval warm climate, uh, which made things even, even warmer and more productive. It was rainy and warm. And so we see people, population in southern Wisconsin especially, growing extraordinarily uh, larger than surrounding populations because the um, resources were so good. Um, now, that population growth, huge. Here in Madison, people are all over the place. The Madison was packed with people. They were living in uplands, little upland ponds, and lake shores, and, and prairie open. They were living everywhere. And so this is a recipe for friction. So many people competing. But just like the, the copper I mentioned before, the um, they developed a system of bonding together in a common religious or worldview. Instead of making war, they're all participating in a religious movement that probably emphasized values and included a common ancestry. Uh, the effigy mounds themselves are important spirit beings, but for example, among the Ho-Chunk today, and these same beings are literally their ancestors. If you're a bear clan member, it is because you are a bear. 
in that your ancestor was a bear that became human. If you're a Thunderbird clan member, it is because you are a Thunderbird. That is, your Thunderbird ancestor came from the sky, lit in a tree, and became human. And the thing goes down here. So by, by, by expressing themselves this way, they're relating their ancestry and claims to the land. Um, many different forms uh, of effigy mounds. Uh, and again, many of these are clans of Native American clans. That is, in modern times, Native people had these forms as clans. But again, also ancestors. And also these spirits played other roles in society. Um, for example, Thunderbirds are known because they give incredible blessings uh, to human beings and so on. Um, bears are associated with earth and in many native traditions are associated with healing and curing and so on. So there's many different roles that these spirits play. Uh, but as I emphasized, uh, I and uh, others have, have emphasized, uh, mounds are often made uh, to be animated or the earth itself animates these uh, creatures. They all have burials uh, in them, uh, but uh, it is my belief that through ceremonial rituals, um, the people, probably medicine people, are actually bringing the spirits to life at the places where they dwell. So these aren't statues. These aren't symbols. These aren't simply clan totems. These are living spirits that are brought out. And once they're brought to life, that's where they are. That's where the spirit is. Um, no need to bother it anymore. And again, people were buried in this, probably with the thought that they're being buried with their ancestor, and that their ancestor is taking them, is now, ca is now carrying them. So you have this merging of the generations that become cyclical, right? You know, um, And these effigy mounds were built in vast landscapes. Uh, these are black dots are all the places where um, they uh, mounds, uh, groups have been recorded, not just individual mounds. And you can see southern Wisconsin is that. So we are the heartland of, of this amazing effigy mound, what we call now the effigy mound ceremonial complex. And we characterize it as an international world wonder. And the center of it, look at the, where the center is. Madison, <laughs> the Four Lakes area is a, is a central part of this. Uh, so uh, the Madison area did play a major role uh, in the development and continuation uh, of this ceremonial uh, complex. Um, but associated with the ceremonial complex uh, were uh, new types of pottery, sometimes very, very intricate. These are all made with corded designs. You see the bird? Thunderbird. So, the pottery itself is not just simply utilitarian, but also has religious uh, uh, connotations. Um, look at the cordage on this. Um, very time consuming, 
women-made pottery in uh, Native American cultures. So the women themselves were spending as much time making pottery as the people were in general making mounds. So somehow this fits in to what was going on in terms of the ceremonial complex, this religious uh, movement. Uh, the pottery made here in southern Wisconsin and elsewhere in the Effigiman region is simply the most complex pottery ever made uh, in ancient uh, 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 Midwest, you know. And again, highly symbolic, has a great deal to do with this effigy mound complex. And the, what was going on in terms of economy was that the people were making a transition from hunting and gathering to growing crops. Corn and so on is introduced during this time. So that is a clue to uh, increasing complexity. For example, during that time, we see the first evidence of fortified villages. And the best example is here in Madison, in Madison area at Governor Nelson Park uh, is a uh, archaeologist found a fortified village very near uh, to where uh, effigy mounds were. Um, new types of housing. These are like earth lodges except made by bark but, but they are semi-subterranean. Um, they dug two or three foot basements and then made these small structures. Best known of these uh, in the upper Midwest is again uh, in this area. Uh, several sites uh, have been found in the footprints uh, of these uh, particular pictures. So there's a great deal of, de great deal of change going on this time. Uh, here's a LIDAR picture of one of the vast landscapes. This is from uh, southwestern Wisconsin. It's called the Rebec site. Birds, uh, um, animals of various sorts, um, all with have, have special symbolism and are considered to be powerful. Uh, again, in this, in this case here, I see a lot of what I think are peregrine falcons. A at the Effigy Mound National Monument, the peregrine falcons that I pointed out before are logical because that stretch of the Mississippi River is known to be the roosting ground of peregrine falcons. To the extent that the National Park Service is reintroducing falcons to, to the park and elsewhere. And here a thousand years ago, they're building peregrine falcons because this is where they live. This is where their spirits are, right here. And so obviously that influences uh, where the habitat of important spirit beings uh, influences where they're um, made. Um, in in uh, Madison uh, area, this is Lake Mendota, all these black dots are effigy mound groups, or had been effigy mound groups. Uh, many of them survive, but about 80% of all effigy mounds have been, 80% have been destroyed. Even so, there are many thousands left, gives you an idea on the extent of the ceremonial complex. Uh, one of the, my favorite places, um, is up at Mendota State Hospital. How many people have been there? Yeah, okay, great. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. The whole complex, uh, it, it, it basically explains to me effigy mound ceremonialism. And it's right here, you know, when I have a question, I can just jump in a car and 
<laughs> go visit. I don't have to get a grant and go across the sea, you know, and, and, and get permission to go, stuff like that. Um, but uh, here is uh, big birds. See those? This is, this is a LIDAR, but I filled in just for clarity. Um, big uh, birds uh, that are almost certainly thunderbirds. And can you see they surround, arc around what archaeologists found several decades ago to be a village site. Um, so one interpretation, now that's, that's interesting, um, but does it relate to this? Among the Ho-Chunk, traditional chiefs of the Ho-Chunk must come from the Thunderbird clan. Even today, traditional chiefs uh, come from the, Thun the Thunderbird clan. Is this the, the, the village, the chief village of the Four Lakes effigy mound people? I think so. And in this case, the Thunderbirds, I believe, were made to protect, as, to protect the village, basically. Um, effigy mounds are built for a variety of purposes, uh, but the primary idea here was Thunderbirds as the great protector of the Thunderbird village. It just makes you know, logical sense uh, and so on. Uh, over here, off to the side, is an effigy mound, a group on private land um, that is most, uh, but about half of it's there, but we have plenty of good records. And uh, why I like this juxtaposed on the village site is that this is sort of a shorthand of the underlying structure of the belief system of the effigy mound people. And that is a division of the upper world and the lower world represented by great spirit beings and a subdivision of the lower world into an earth and a watery underworld. But each one having different powers and so on. And uh, to begin a close up, but to explain that, the line begins with another form of Thunderbirds. This is how native people make Thunderbirds even today. And then it goes into earth animals, bears and a canine. And then all of a sudden, the whole grouping switches orientation, goes towards the water. And one, this mound right here is something called a water spirit, common to this area and especially eastern part of the effigy mound people. Water spirits are powerful spirits that live in the water. They have a very long tail. They're sometimes imagined to be horned. Okay, um, They can be malicious. They can be cranky. Um, early uh, Ho-Chunk people told Charles E. Brown of the Wisconsin Historical Society a long time ago that Governor's Island, if you know where that is in Lake, in Lake Mendota, is where the water spirits live. And if you don't put tobacco in the water, when you go out in a boat, they're going to suck you down <laughs> uh, into their habitats. So how many people go out on a boat on Lake Mendota without putting tobacco in the water? <laughs> well, now you know. <laughs> you've, you, you've got the warning now. Yeah. But anyway, very important. And, and some of these are colossal, by the way. Uh, water spirits 
um, are uh, can be have tails of 700, 800 feet. Um, the the uh, Thunderbird there in the center has a wingspan of 634 feet, and a larger Thunderbird existed once existed along the Wisconsin River. That was a quarter of a mile long. So some of these were colossal uh, mounds, uh, and I, I think you can understand why these are so interesting. I mean, besides being just representations, uh, why archaeologists find these? Because there are so many clues into their belief system, how they lived, how they perceived the world. Um, the the uh, remaining question is, why did they build so many uh, uh, during a certain time period? They were calling upon blessings of the spirits for various reasons, but why? In, in such a, 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 a extraordinary fashion, time-consuming fashion. Uh, so, um, if you want to know the answer to that, you're going to have to wait for the third edition. <laughs> um, the, so the effigy mound comes, uh, oh, I should mention that another, uh, to emphasize the ceremonial uh, aspect of the effigy mound cultures um, is the fact that sometimes water spirits were not mounds, but were water spirits. They're called intaglios, and the only one left is in Fort Atkinson, and you can see head, feet, and then what had been a very long tail. Water spirits are known for their very long tails, similar in form to like a panther, uh, and so on. Uh, and in Toglail uh, is sort of the opposite of the mound. It's dug into the mound rather than being mounded up. These were not burial sites. Uh, and so the Intaglios were always interesting uh, to us, and then um, several years ago, remember when we had such huge rains, closed off everything? The Intaglio filled up with water and became a water spirit, you know. So this lovely uh, uh, sort of, of, of experience uh, for us really gave us the thought uh, that again, even the Intaglios were meant to be living, but appropriately not made of earth but of water itself. All right, so effigy man's culture came to end about 1100 AD, and in part because of the entrance of these people, the Mississippians that I talked about before. Um, in southern Illinois, uh, people down there uh, began growing corn and soon became intensive farmers and built a city, a huge city, covering six square miles uh, we now call Cahokia. Have your kids been to Cahokia? Yeah, you should go down there. It's really, it, you know, it's, it's climbing the mounds. But Cahokia has all, all, also the most wonderful museum in the whole country. Yeah, it's worth, it's worth seeing the museum itself. Isn't that great? Um, and these Mississippians, as they grew, uh, expanded and came into uh, Wisconsin eventually. And again, creating um, a town we now call Astolan, which is only 30 miles away. And at Astolan, they moved in with this woodland people, the, the former effigy mound people. Um, in other cases, we get the idea that there was conflict. Uh, for example, I showed you that fortified village that's here in Madison, right? 
Well, that was here, that was there why Astalan was going 30 miles away, and yet there's no evidence of any kind of contact, peaceful contact. So it may be that Madison people were at war. So the idea is that the Mississippians came in, introduced some new ideas, uh, and had various relationships. Some of them were trade relationships, others were intermarriage, uh, dependent on the area, but bottom line is that the effigy mound people and woodland people began to disappear, their traditions. Effigy mounds, for example, were not built anymore. Uh, but the Mississippian society, Cahokia, and this whole complex disappeared in the upper Midwest at 1200 AD, probably for climatic areas. It persisted down south, but after 1200 AD, we have no Mississippians and we know of no new effigy bound people. What happened? And this is where I'm going to be ending up. I'm not going to tell you, you have to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> A third new culture uh, springs to life after 1200 AD that we believe to be a product of the interaction of the Mississippians with the effigy mound people. They, know, they, didn't, build, they didn't build platform mounds, they didn't build effigy mounds, they had regular cemeteries that we kind of use today, but it was a different, uh, it was a cultural expression that we think derived uh, from from this sort of interrelationship between these two cultures. We call it Oneota. Uh, one of the standard later on structures were longhouses as compared to the smaller houses that we saw before. We call Oneota uh, and Oneota comes into the historic period, that is when the first Europeans came here. We are positive that it was the Oneota archaeologically speaking, who were the tribes that the Europeans met, including the Ho-Chunk and others. Uh, therefore, uh, uh, giving us, um, giving us a, a good idea, uh, or, or showing us that the, that the Ho-Chunk belief system and other tribes are reflected. Their ancient, their ancient belief systems go back to the effigy mound people, you know. And they still have them in, in modern days, but that's because there was a cultural condition. You know, we can't say that, for example, the Ho Chunk alone built the mounds, because we know that the Ho Chunk uh, were at one time a part of a greater group that included uh, a group called the Iowa Indians, who moved off. They split off and moved off, uh, and uh, the Ho Chunk today. Uh, are not the same Ho-Chunk that existed a thousand years ago, you know. Uh, societies tend to split, split off or, or, or attach each other and become bigger and so on. Uh, in talking, when people are m really most interested in, so which tribe made the mounds, um, I say, well, you know, Ho-Chunk and other tribes have mound building in their ancestry. But to say that Ho-Chunk made the mounds is like saying the English built Stonehenge. Well, yes and no. <laughs> uh, English did not, English was not a, a, an ethnic identity at the time. But are the 
ancestors of modern English, were they involved? Oh, sure. But the English did not exist as because cultures tend to change. So we cannot, we cannot make a direct line, but we can talk about common ancestries. And all of these mounds that I talked about before, even the Mississippians probably, uh, are in the cultural traditions of the people, native people that are with us today uh, here in Wisconsin. And this is their story. So with that, I'm going to end up uh, my presentation.